This is the Gospel of John, and we are at uh, week number seven. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you this evening for this time together when we can look again into your word and how thankful we are for it and for the truth that we find there. We're thankful, Father, that you use this word to bring us to Christ, cause us to see our condition as sinners who are rebellious against you, but by your grace, you sent your spirit into our hearts and awakened us to this truth. And we're thankful that uh, this gives us eternal life as this gospel teaches. And we actually have it as a, a surety, a certainty for the rest of our lives and into eternity. So bless and help us this evening as we seek to uh, further understand the truths that John is teaching. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at the Gospel of John, uh, week 7. And as you can see in your notes, we're dealing with the public ministry. That's chapters 1 through 12. <clears throat> and we are looking now at the growth of unbelief. This is Jesus back in Jerusalem. Um, this is, uh, you know, chapter 5. So he's back now in Jerusalem uh, for a festival. We don't know what that was. It says he returned for a festival. If it was a Passover, then we said that tells us how long his ministry was. But we know it was an important festival. He's back there for the healing of this man who is lame. And our scene takes place at the pool of Bethesda up here. Uh, just outside, just north of the Temple Mount here. And uh, here's the Temple Mount, according to the model, and here's this pool of Bethesda where uh, this miracle healing takes place. Um, and the healing <clears throat> revolves, remember in the first, uh, we're actually at verse 10, but we saw the healing involved an invalid man who had been invalid for 38 years. So he was obviously well known to the community. And he's at the pool and Jesus, you know, asks him if he wants to be healed. And he tells him, you know, pick up your mat and walk. And we're told that this is on a Sabbath. And so this brings about one of these Sabbath controversies. So in the Gospels we see commonly that Jesus is charged with violating the Sabbath. Now the man initially is, is the one who is He's the one who picked up his mat, so he's the one who violated, but they're really after Jesus as the instigator of this uh, breaking of the Sabbath. So we saw the miracle uh, in the first nine verses. Now we come to this opposition of the Jews here in verses 10 through 18. And they charge a Sabbath violation. Uh, verse 10, And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. I mentioned here that in the Synoptic Gospels we see a number of these Sabbath controversies. Uh, and these disputes become so great that they were one of the reasons the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus. But as I said, at first it's not Jesus who is charged with breaking the Sabbath, but the man who was healed. The Old Testament had forbidden work on the Sabbath. 
Now the assumption there, I think most would agree, was work refers to your regular customary employment. Uh, by Old Testament standards, it's not clear that the healed man was actually breaking the law since he did not normally carry mats around for a living, you know, so that wouldn't normally be that. But as time went on, uh, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, rabbis, and others uh, made uh, almost anything, anything you did on the Sabbath, a violation. And so if we look at, you know, the, this according to the oral law, we said there was an oral law that the Jewish leaders held to. Eventually, this oral law gets written down. As it's written down, uh, this is the kind of thing that they actually list 39 things <laughs> you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath, and one of them is carrying. Uh, you know, carrying. So they see this, oh, he's carried something. He's, it's a violation of the Sabbath. So you're not allowed to to do anything. And, and Orthodox Jews today, they try to stick to this uh, really very carefully. You know, I think, I think I mentioned in this class that, you know, they live in New York City in apartment buildings and they don't press the button on the elevator. Remember I told you that on the Sabbath, they have a Sabbath uh, position that you go into the elevator, it opens up and it just goes up one floor at a time and you get off where your floor is and you don't have to do that, you know. My stove uh, has a Sabbath position on it. <laughs> My Whirlpool stove has a Sabbath position on it. I don't know if you, if you ever look at the manual, read the manual on your stu new stoves. They have a Sabbath position so you can operate it without using any electronics or anything like that. I haven't really explored it, but I just noticed in the manual, it's got a Sabbath position for Orthodox Jews so they can use this stove <laughs> on the Sabbath day. Why did you buy it? <laughs> I didn't buy it, it just came with the house. <laughs> just why Whirlpool does it, I guess, for all their appliances, you know. I don't know what they do about the refrigerator. You gotta open it, I guess. <laughs> You're in trouble there. Uh, verse 11, but he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fella who told you to pick up and walk. The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So we say here, the man defends himself by blaming the one who told him to carry his bed. He's simply, you know, obviously ducking the authorities here. He will surely go so far as to instigate, uh, ingratiate himself with them when he tells them exactly who it was. He identifies Jesus. Um, so the authorities, they want to know who the uh, healer was because this guy's going around telling people to break one of these 39 categories, obviously. I mean, he's telling him to pick up his mat. He's telling him to violate the Sabbath. So he's far more dangerous than the man who actually picked up his mat and so forth. They seem to ignore the healing here. That's a miraculous healing. You'd think they'd be excited about that and thankful to God about that, but no. There's nothing like that. They're just concerned about some sort of legalistic violation of a supposed Sabbath violation. Verse 14, later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now this later, we don't know how much later this is, uh, you know, sometime later, hours or whatever. Uh, Jesus found the man in the temple. 
the, words, the Lord's words, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you, would seem to indicate that in this particular instance, the man's ailment was the result of sin in his life. That seems to be what we're supposed to conclude. As I say, this does not mean that all physical illness is the result of sin, as we'll see in chapter 9 when we get to uh, this man who was born blind. Jesus heals him, and immediately the disciples say, because they've got this same theory, (laughs) they've got a theory that all illness is caused by sin. Uh, They say, you remember Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? Somebody had to sin. And Jesus says, well, none of them sinned. This was just part of God's plan so that God could ultimately be glorified through this healing. So there's no direct connection to any particular sin. So, so I say it doesn't mean that all physical illness is a result of sin or that all sin is punished with physical illness. But sometimes this is the case. I mean, sometimes God uh, does uh, physically punish people. We have Acts chapter 5. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira. You remember they lied and God makes an example out of them. You've got 1 Corinthians 11 uh, where Paul says because of your uh, the way you've done the Lord's Supper because uh, you have neglected the poor there uh, he says some of you are ill and some of you asleep. You know? So he implies that God has uh, has uh, punished some people in this life for their sin. Um, now, the truth is, we just never know. You know, There's no way for us to accurately read providence. By providence, I mean God is working out His plan in the universe. So, as Pastor Ken often reminds us and talks about a lot, you know, there's no accidents, nothing happens by accident. Whatever happens to our life is part of God's plan, but it's difficult to read it. We, don't, we can't read. We don't have a book of providence to look at and say, this is what happened. You had this car accident last week. Why did I have that, Lord? I don't know why. You know, it, We can try to reflect on it and think about it and see if, you know, but we should think about, it. is there sin in my life? Is God trying to tell me something? But sometimes it's not. It's like the man born blind. He didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. But this happened to him for a greater reason. Sometimes things happen to us, terrible things. But it's not because of us personally. It's because God has a greater plan. He's doing something that he's using that incident to involve us. So it's very difficult. When, when, when we have these kind of problems, we should examine ourselves. But it's very difficult to read providence. We can't be certain about that. But Jesus says, you know, be careful of something worse. That would be, you know, eternal judgment. This physical judgment, but... There is something worse than that. Verse 15, this man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. So I mentioned the man's not really going there to the Jewish authorities to give Jesus credit. Uh, He knows they're opposing Jesus. He's just informing on Jesus because they asked him previously, you know, who who did this fellow told you to pick up your mat? So he's really, you know, sort of, I think, saving his own skin here. Um, There's no charge of breaking the Sabbath that's been recorded up to this point. But notice the verse says here, um, uh, Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
it may suggest that this particular instance was one of a number that are not recorded by John that prompted the Jewish leaders to persecute Jesus. We know that in the Gospels, other Gospels, there's a number of these incidents that are mentioned there. Though we're not told exactly, we're not told what, what the persecution looked like here, but just that they began to do this. For chapter 5, verse 17, the charge of blasphemy. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. The explanation of Jesus is that he was, what he was doing on the Sabbath was entirely consistent with the Sabbath rest of God the Father. While it's true that God rested on the Sabbath, the rabbis themselves correctly concluded that God still works on the Sabbath since his work of providence and preservation, that is preserving the universe, keeping things in order, is continually going on. Uh, God rested from his creative work you know, after the creation week. He's not creating something new, but he is controlling and bringing everything uh, uh, according to his plan and so forth. So in that sense, he was working. Um, Jesus' point is that just as his father's continuing work does not violate the Sabbath, so his work, such as healing or telling the man to carry his mat, does not violate the Sabbath. Now, we know from, from what we know of Judaism and even the Old Testament, we know that in corporate worship, sometimes Jews referred to God as our Father um, with some qualifying phrase like our Father in Heaven, like we see in the Lord's Prayer, you know, our Father in Heaven. But um, people didn't speak like this as God was their Father, their personal Father in you know, this very unique sense that Jesus claims here, you know, my father. Uh, Jesus is claiming a very special relationship to the father, unlike any other human would have. Um, so Jesus' work is like that of his father. The father is above side regulation, so is Jesus. Verse 18, you can see that they understand what Jesus is saying when he says, my father, Verse 18, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his father, making himself equal with God. So they saw this for what it really is. They understood the truth of this. When he said, my father, uh, he works and I work, he puts, he's putting himself on an equal plane with the father. And so uh, they understand this in their thinking to be blasphemous, you know. The Jews immediately reacted to Jesus' words. They understand his expression as calling God his own father and thus making himself equal with God. It's one thing to break the Sabbath, but to make himself equal with God was blasphemy. We should note that Jesus does not try to correct their understanding of his words as though they had just misunderstood him and that he was not really claiming a unique relationship to God. Although, uh, you know, Jesus... Um, Although Jesus is equal with God, he's not equal in the way that uh, the Jews probably understood the idea. In the sense, Jesus is not another God, you know. It's not like the pagan religions where uh, they have multiple gods, they may be equal to them. Jesus is not another God, he's not a competing God in that sense. Uh, Jesus will go on to explain his relationship 
with the Father uh, as one of what theologians call functional subordination uh, or what's called the economic trinity. Boy, <laughs> this is one of the most theologically dense sections and complex ones that we're about to face right here. It's really, it's really one that theologians have wrestled with and wrestled with and wrestled with because it involves the Trinity. How are we to think about the Trinity? On the one hand, we talk about what's called the ontological Trinity. You probably heard Pastor Ken use that term. So ontology has to do with being or existence, what they are in their primary function. So not function, what they are in themselves. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are, as far as their being, entirely, entirely equal in power, in attributes, in every way. So they're, as far as their being, they're all God. But, so that's called the ontological trinity. We, sometimes we talk about the economic. Economics has to do with how you function, how you work. And the Trinity functions differently. It functions in a subordinate relationship one to the other. That is, the Son never sends the Father. The Father sends the Son. And the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. So they, they have a way that they function together. Uh, you know, much like we talk about um, in our relationships here on earth. It's a, it's, a real, it's a real issue because um, we talk about functional subordination in the family. Our children are equal. You know, your 17-year-old son is equal to you. He's fully human. He's in the image of God. But still, he doesn't have your authority. He functions as your son. You know what I'm saying like that? So there's, there, there are these functional levels that are under one another, but they don't indicate being, ontological being, being unequal. So I'll try to mention this again as we go through this. So um, Jesus is equal with God. It's true. The Son is equal to God, but that's in an ontological sense. And as Jesus will explain, that's not in a functional sense. Let's look at that explanation and see what we can make of it. First of all, the Father and the Son and the Father. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do what he sees his Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So as we previously noted, although Jesus was making himself equal with God in verse 18, for Jesus, it does not mean complete or even partial independence from his Father. The truth is the Son can do nothing by himself, that is, on his own initiative. While Jesus is the unique Son of God and may be truly be called God, remember the word was God, God the one and only. Verse, chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas says, My Lord and my God. And to take himself divine titles, verse chapter 80 will say, Before Abraham was born, I am. I mean, he's equating himself with God in Exodus. I am that I am there. Uh, and in this context, divine rights, rights to, to work as his father works, yet he is always submissive to the father. In 829, we are told that the son always does what the father, what pleases the father. The one who sent me is with me and has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. In fact, 
Here in verse 19, we're told they can only do what he sees the Father doing. So in this sense, the relationship between the Father and Son is not reciprocal. Um, the Father, so if we look at that chart on the left, we, we're just trying to explain the Trinity, that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. There's, that's sort of an ontological chart. They're all equally God. But the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. They're different persons. So one God, three personalities. Now that's how it's been understood for 2,000 years as far as we know. So we haven't come up with any new idea. When the Protestant Reformation came along and Luther was trying to reform the church and correct it, he didn't, he didn't find anything wrong with the Trinity he had to correct. He didn't, he didn't say anything that the Catholic Church had a wrong view of the Trinity. They didn't have a wrong view. They have a right view of the Trinity. So that's not a problem there. Uh, but the, chart on the, the, the thing on the right is trying to show how, this, uh, how they operate and how they function together. The Father is the one who initiates. He's the one who sins. He's the one who commands. He commissions. He grants. The, the Son responds. He obeys. He performs the Father's will. He receives authority. And so we're talking about this economic trinity in contrast to the ontological trinity. I say here the last part of verses 19 and 20 through 22 is structured around four explanations. Each explanation begins with the same Greek word, which though translated differently in the English, either because or for, for or moreover, is the same. In the first here in verse 19 translated because, Jesus explains that it's impossible for the Son to take independent, self-determined action that would that would, should be, be contrary to the Father. Um, so perfect sonship involves perfect identity of will and action with the Father. Okay, here's another heavy truth the theologians tell us. There's only one will in God. There's only one will in God, though there are different expressions of that will yet they're always in complete agreement. Jesus says, you know, in chapter 6, he'll say, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of the one who sent me. So the Father is the one who initiates. That's the will of God, but the will of the Son is in perfect agreement with that, even though he, he says the Father sent and I came to do the Father's will. If you're doing the Father's will, you're doing the Spirit's will. If you're doing the Father's will, you're doing the Son's will. There's one will in God. They don't have divided wills, but they express it differently. The, Father, the Son can talk to the Father. You know, they can communicate and express, different, uh, express their wills, but they're never in competition. They're never uh, in disagreement. But you know, all this points to the deity of the Son here because... Um, Whoever can do what the Father does, he can only do what he sees his Father doing, he says. So, you know, whoever can um, uh, do what the Father does must be as great as the Father. If you can do what the Father does, you must be as great as the Father. You must be as divine as the Father, you know. Uh, no, no human being would claim to be able to do all that God has done all that God does, but the Son does. He claims He can do all that God the Father does. Verse 20, For the Father loves the Son 
and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. The second four explains how it is that the Son can do whatever the Father does. It's because the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. The Father's love for the Son is manifested in the Father's continuous revealing to the Son of all the Father does. The love of the Son for the Father is shown in the perfect obedience that ultimately brings the Son to the cross. But he says, but the world in 1431, must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. So the love of the Father and the love of the Son are perfectly reciprocal in purity, uh, but not in the way that, not in the way that the love, that not in the way the love of each is displayed. So they display their love in different ways. Um, The Father, out of His love, shows the Son all He does. And the Son, as a result of His love for the Father, we're told here, obeys Him perfectly and does whatever the Father does. It it follows that the Son, by His obedience uh, to do the Father, is acting in a way that's revealing the Father. Uh, So if the Son is doing whatever the Father wants Him to do, then he is, by doing that, revealing the Father. Um, this, this obedience and dependence that characterize Jesus' uh, functional subordination to the Father um, are so perfect that, as I said, Jesus does, whatever Jesus does is what the Father wills and does. So whatever Jesus does is like what the Father would do. He does perfectly what the Father does. That's why Jesus can say later in 14.9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Why could you say that? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's because whatever I do is what the Father does. There's just one will in God. There's no difference. So Jesus perfectly reveals the Father. So when we see Him... It's like seeing the Father. I say here, the Father will show the Son even greater things than the things that have already been done, the healing of a particular disease, His instruction regarding the Sabbath. These greater things include giving life to the dead, as we'll see in verse 21, and pronouncing final judgment in verse 22. Verse 21, For just as the Father raises the dead, and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. The third four introduces an example of the principal truth of verses 19 through 20, that the Son does whatever the Father does because the Father's perfect self-disclosure to the Son, because of His perfect self-disclosure. This is clearly seen in the perfect parallelism expressed in this verse. What the Father does, resurrection, is what the Son does. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life. So there's a perfect parallelism there. In fact, the Son gives life to whomever He is pleased to give it. Now, we always know that that'll be what God the Father wants, but He can express His own will. That's what I'm saying. He can express His own will, you know, and the Father can express His will. The wills are always in agreement, but they can express that will because they're different persons. 
the Old Testament teaches that raising the dead is really only something, I just picked out one verse, only something that God can do. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I myself am He. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. No one can deliver out of my hand. God is saying. So only God can, um, can raise the dead. Um, now we know from what we understand of first century Judaism uh, and they're what they talk about, about the Messiah, they didn't really believe the Messiah would have that authority. They didn't believe any, they, they, they saw Elijah as kind of an exception, <laughs> but they didn't really think that humans could be able to raise the dead. Uh, you know, it was still God who used Elijah and so forth. So they didn't see Elijah as having the power to raise the dead. They didn't say Elijah. They said God used Elijah. But Jesus is claiming more than that. Jesus is saying the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. You see, So that's different than Elijah. Verse 22, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. The final, moreover, explains that although the Father and the Son enjoy the prerogative of giving life, the Father has determined that it will not be His direct task to judge anyone, but instead trusted all judgment to the Son. Now again, this is a remarkable statement because um, in the Old Testament, only God has the prerogative of judgment. Uh, but now we see that God the Father has determined that the Son will have authority to give, uh, to judge, and to give resurrection life also. Verse 23, uh, well, that, that'll come in verse 27, 28. Verse 23, so he says, uh, He's entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So the reason why the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son is so that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Now this is true, it becomes obvious, who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So Jesus is claiming a unique, a unique thing here. Uh, he's not just a representative of God. He's not some ambassador for God, as we've seen Moses say, or something like that. He's equal with God. Uh, now, <laughs> when somebody talks like this, there's only two possible reactions to that. Either we have to dismiss this person as psychologically, mentally ill, or we have to realize that we're talking about God, you know, here. Somebody who would claim these kinds of things. Uh, and so it, it, it mentioned, it brings up what I said before. All religions that fail to acknowledge Jesus, who He is, deity, you know, this relationship to the Father, three persons in one, all who fail to recognize the Trinity are not really worshiping the true God, as we said before. Whoever doesn't honor the Son as the Son, with all that we've said about Him, you're not really worshiping the Father. You're worshiping an idol. Even though you may talk about God and you may talk about the Father and all that stuff, uh, you're, not, you're, you're really worshiping an idol. Well, the Son and Men, verses 24 through 30. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed from death to life. 
So to those whom the Son gives life are now described as whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. Such a person has eternal life. And so again, we see John expressing this eternal life as a present possession. And this is, again, contrary to Jewish thinking, which looked upon uh, you know, eternal life as something you got at the judgment and so forth. But here the judgment has a sense already been passed. The believer has eternal life and will not be condemned. Remember, as I've mentioned, the opposite of condemnation is justification, a present possession we've crossed from death to life. An amazing statement. Verse 25, Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and now has come. Notice that. And now has come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. This verse is similar to what we will read in verse 28. In verse 28, uh, Jesus will say, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who hear, excuse me, when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. So he's talking about the judgment here. There's a time coming, verse 28, when all who hear, who, who are all in the graves will hear his voice. But that's not what we're talking about here. He says, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son and those who hear will live. This, I say it's, it's similar to verse 28, except that the inclusion of the phrase, and has now come, to a time is coming, along with the absence of the mention of the graves, indicates that here in verse 25, Jesus is speaking of regeneration, not physical resurrection, but giving spiritual life, giving life now. Jesus calls the spiritually dead to spiritual life, as we've already seen in some of these cases in the Gospels, just like the woman at the well in Samaria. He called her to life right now, spiritual life. And that's why he says it's right now when the dead, she, that one, Samaritan woman was spiritually dead, she heard the voice of the Son of God and she had life, spiritual life, eternal life. Verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. The four indicates that this verse explains how it is that the Son can exercise divine judgment and generate resurrection life by His powerful Word. It's because like God, He has life in Himself. God is self-existent. He is always the living God. Mere human beings are derived creatures. Our life comes from God and He can remove it as easily as He gave it. But to the Son and to the Son alone, God has imparted life in Himself. Now this cannot mean that the Son gained this privilege only after the Incarnation. Uh, remember back in the prologue, we noticed that uh, um, the, the, the uh, pre-incarnate, uh, before the Incarnation, the pre-incarnate Son, uh, it says, in Him was life in John 1.4. Uh, so it's not saying here, for as the Father has life, He has granted the Son to have life. So this doesn't mean, this is not a granting after the incarnation, if I'm trying to make myself clear. You might say, okay, the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son. So somehow when He became incarnate, He granted Him to have life in Himself. No, that's not true, because as we said, uh, in his pre-incarnate state, John 1, 4, the Son had life in himself. 
Um, so, this is one of the most difficult verses to interpret in the Bible. <laughs> what exactly does this mean? For as the Father has life himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Well, theologians generally uh, talk here about a doctrine called eternal generation. I don't know if you've ever, ever heard of such a doctrine or such an idea. It's not an easy one to understand, but it's been around for at least 1,700 years at least. Um, so what we're talking about is an eternal act here. God eternally, if we can understand that, <laughs> this is an eternal kind of thing. He has eternally granted the Son to have life in Himself. This is part of the ontological trinity that there are these eternal relationships. And one of these is the Father has eternally granted, as it says here, the Son to have life in Himself. So there is no time on this. This is an eternal thing. Now that's difficult to, 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 to say. Uh, but what this means is, how this is understood is, um, the Son is this, of the same nature as the Father. Uh, as we've said, he's of the same nature. This is an eternal uh, thing where the Father grants this to the Son as an eternal kind of relationship. Uh, the Son is a distinct person from the Father, as we've said. Um, there's a specific order between the relationships Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So uh, granted, this is, this is a, a very difficult uh, verse to understand, exactly this granting of the Son, but this is understood, it has been understood, to be as best we can understand what's called an eternal... Now, generation sounds like... Uh, it sounds like somebody is generated. <laughs> uh, like a human is generated or something like that. So, but it's got the word eternal in front of it, eternal generation. So it's, it's a difficult concept to make sense of. Um, it speaks of an eternal relationship. Now, it's called generation because there's the father and the son. A father generates a son. A son comes from the father in normal our understanding, don't they? The father come, The son comes from the father. And so... We think of the father-son relationship as a generating kind of relationship, but of course, he was, he's eternal with the father, equal to the father, God, so this must have been an eternal kind of relationship. I know this is in the deep <laughs> weeds right here, but this is, this is how this is understood. We can talk more about it if you like. Verse 27, and he has given authority to judge because he's the son of man. Not only has the father granted the son to have life in himself, but he has given him authority to judge. The reason given is because he's the son of man. Remember this title, son of man, I said, goes back to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. In my night vision at night, I looked and there was before me one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, Daniel is saying. He approached the ancient of days, the father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power over all people's nations and men of every language worship Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. So His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So 
Jesus picks up on this messian, this title and, and uses it as a messianic title. I am that one. I am this person that Daniel saw in his vision here. Uh, he is therefore un, un, you know, un, uniquely qualified, I guess we'd say, uniquely qualified to judge because he receives a kingdom that entails total dominion. Verse 28, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is evil will rise to, to life, to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So those who hear Jesus should not be amazed at what he has just said, that the voice of the Son of Man is able to generate spiritual life now, for in the future it will be powerful enough to call the forth the dead from the graves in the end times. Both the righteous dead and the wicked dead will be resurrected by the voice of Christ, the righteous to, fully, to enter fully into the bliss of eternity with glorified bodies, the wicked to hear their doom pronounced. Those who have done good are those who have come to light so that it may be plainly seen, quoting here 321. Those who have done good are those who have come to light so that it, come to the light so it may be plainly seen what they have done, they have done through God. Those who have done evil are those, according to 319, who love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Now, it sounds like this is teaching what we might call a general resurrection. And so some Christians hold to what's called a general resurrection. That is, that all people, all humans, past, present, I mean, all past humans at the end of time, are resurrected at the same time. There's this one judgment, one judgment, and, uh, and all of us who have died will be resurrected and will be given life, and all the unsaved will be resurrected and they'll be cast into hell at one, one, one time. Um, those of us who are pre-millennialist, we believe there's a gap between those judgments. That is, there's... Uh, a time when Christ comes and, and brings a judgment to the Christians at the great white throne, at the uh, judgment seat of Christ. Then there's the great white throne later where there are no believers at the great white throne. That's, you know, the only people at the great white throne are unsaved people. So we only know that through later revelation. Uh, Jesus does not, um, you know, explain, the, his, it, his interest is not chronology here. He's not trying to explain chronologically when the judgments occurs. He's just saying, the son, of, the son of Man, I am going to execute all judgment. Uh, I'm going to uh, raise everybody. Uh, in the premillennial view, like we held here at our church, uh, those of us who are dead in Christ, we will be raised before the millennium a thousand years before the great white throne, right? We'll be raised before the millennial kingdom uh, and we will enter the millennial kingdom with Jesus, reign, rule and reign with him for a thousand years. And then at the end of that millennial kingdom, uh, the unsaved will be raised at the great, great white throne. So he's not giving chronology, but some people take it that way. And so you, you'll see people talk about the general resurrection. They just mean everybody saved and unsaved alike are raised at the same time. But I think re later, re later uh, Revelation, the book of Revelation, indicates there's a thousand-year break there. Verse 30, By myself I can do nothing. 
I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. We can be sure that the judgment Jesus will exercise is perfectly just, for like everything else he says and does, in his judgment he is completely dependent on the word and will of the Father. So this verse is really a statement, restatement of verses 19 and 20, specifically applied to Jesus' authority as to judge. Well, now we come to the Son and Witnesses, verses 31 through 47. First, self-witness. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus insists that if he were to bear witness about himself, that witness would not be valid in a technical, legal, Old Testament law sense. Jesus does not mean that if he says anything about himself, it must be false, but self-witness is valid only if confirmed by witnesses. Remember, Deuteronomy says, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And the New Testament picks up on that. Paul mentions a couple. You have to establish facts by two or three witnesses. You can't just take one person's testimony. And so that's what Jesus is referring to here, is that if I test about my, my, myself, my testimony is not legally acceptable. Verse, and he mentions another. There is another, he says, verse 32, who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. <clears throat> the other person who bears witness must be the Father. It seems clear it's not John the Baptist from the flow of thought in the verses that follow. So we'll have to see that. It's, it's, you don't know that right yet, but it's, it's pretty clear as we go further that he's talking about the Father. So Jesus says he accepts the testimony of another, but in verse 34 he'll say it's not human testimony. He'll, call, he'll say this testimony I'm talking about is not human. So we'll see it's revealed as the Father. Now he mentions John the Baptist. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. So Jesus' hearers clearly needed corroborative testimony, and to this Jesus now turns. The first witness he mentions is John the Baptist. John the Baptist did bear witness to the truth of Jesus' identity. What he said about Jesus was in fact true, but it was, after all, only human testimony, which can add nothing to Jesus' self-consciousness about who he is, since he is already, already has the testimony of the Father, the another. However, John the Baptist's testimony was true. It was genuine. And so Jesus mentions it because if you accept what J John said, you could be saved. <laughs> uh, this testimony of John was given so that people could come to the truth, so they'd come to the light and be saved. John, remember, acted as a lamp that lighted the way to, to light the way to Christ. Um, so... He says, I don't need John's testimony, but it was true, and you accepted it, and, and you should accept it, and it would lead to me, ultimately. Now, he does say here, um, uh, it's, he says here, um, he uses these past tenses. John was a lamp. John was a lamp. And he uses the past tense here, which suggests that John is now either in prison, which you remember he was imprisoned, 
or he's dead. He's been put to death already, so that, that time has passed. Verse 36, the works. I gave testimony weightier, I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. There is weightier testimony to Jesus' person and mission than that of John the Baptist, the witness of the Father. This is seen in an indirect way in the works the Father has given him to do. These works which he is presently completing and which will include all of Jesus' ministry testify that the Father sent him. They will culminate in his death and resurrection. Um, so if you follow the gospel of John up to this point, you'll know that these works that Jesus has done, these miracles, are not, are not done to demonstrate that Jesus is just a great human being, that he's some notable person or something like that. Uh, John has explained his works are divine works. They are the works of God, in fact. Uh, they attest to who Jesus is and who the Father is. Once you get this father-son relationship, if you can get that down, you can see here when he says, the works that the Father has given me to finish. I'm doing what the Father would do. Uh, that's, a, that's a testimony to who I am. Only I can do exactly what the Father would do, but I can do that. The Father, verses 37 through 47. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. So there's also a more direct witness of the Father in that he has himself testified concerning Jesus. This is a general reference to all the Father's revealing work, including Scripture, and at Jesus' baptism. Remember there, at the baptism, the voice came from heaven. This is my Beloved Son, as King James says, you know, I'm pleased with Him. So the Father testified directly there to Him. Those whom Jesus is addressing are not regenerate, and their unregenerate state is demonstrated by the fact that they do not believe the one the Father sent. Verse 39, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have the eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So the spiritual condition of these Jews is clearly seen in their approach to the scriptures. The Jewish leaders of Jesus' day were undoubtedly diligent students of the scriptures. But Jesus points out that their primary motivation in such diligently study was the hope of final acceptance by God because you think in them you have eternal life. But Jesus insists here, there's nothing intrinsically life-giving about studying the scriptures. You know, if one fails to discern the true content and the true purpose. Um, I mean, as I've mentioned before, <clears throat> there are a lot of people who are very expert about the scriptures who are not saved. They admit they're not, I mean, they, they really admit that they're not really born-again Christians or anything like that. I've got books in my library, commentaries written by people who I would say are not really saved. They were never saved. 
but they were experts in Greek and history and archaeology and you know there's plenty of people in universities all across the country who know a lot about the Bible <clears throat> and teach courses on the Bible um, who are just not Christians at all. So just studying the scripture itself, you know, without accepting its message, without understanding what it's really all about, you don't f find life there. Jesus says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Um, so if these Jews ref refuse to come to Jesus for life, their refusal is evidence that they're not reading the scriptures properly. They're not reading them like they're meant to be read. And as I say, that's not an uncommon thing, unfortunately. Verse 41, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. Uh, I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. Not only does Jesus not accept human testimony, he does not accept human praise. Thus, these Jews should not think he's speaking harshly because they failed to congratulate him for his miracle-working power. He was not seeking glory from men. The works he does testify to his glory. His commitment was to please the Father. Um, but that's not the case with these Jews, uh, verse 42. But I know you, see, uh, they sought praise from men. That's what they live for. Uh, Jesus knew all men, he says, you know, back in chapter 2, verse 24. So he knew these men didn't have the love of God in their hearts. He knew that these people, these Jews, were not genuine believers. They didn't truly know God. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. So as further evidence of their failure, they fail to respond properly to Jesus, the one who has come in the Father's name. If they truly love the Father, they would love the Son. If they're really regenerate, they would have accepted the Son. And there were people in the New Testament who did. You know, there were people who had accepted the truth, uh, and they, you know, we see in, around Jesus' birth and, and uh, you know, so forth. People in the temple, Anna, and so forth. People, if you've accepted God genuinely, you would accept His Son. You would recognize Him. Um, but they reject the Son, but they turn to false messiahs. But if someone else comes in His own name, you will accept Him. Now, no one here is identified. None of these messiahs are identified. But, uh, you know, particularly the uh, Jewish writer Josephus, I don't know if you've heard that name, Josephus, Josephus was a Jewish writer who lived in the first century at the time of Jesus. He lived during the, the lifetime of Jesus. <clears throat> he was a uh, faithful Jew. Uh, when the Romans came in, he, uh, he, had, an, he had an army that uh, uh, you know, attacked the Romans, but they defeated him, and he eventually went over to the Roman side, <laughs> and they kept him alive. He went to Rome, but he wrote a bunch of histories, the history of the Jews and very important works. But he identifies a whole string of kind of false messiahs uh, before AD 70, before uh, you know, the fall of, 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 uh, of uh, Jerusalem and so forth. And so we know there's, there was a bunch of those before. We know in history, particularly one after, you know, after 
the Romans defeated the Jews and destroyed the temple and everything in AD 70, the Jews revolted again in the second century. Around 132, there was another revolt of the Jews led by a man by the name of Bar Kokhba. Bar Kokhba, that means son of the morning, which is a messianic title. And the most famous rabbi of the day, Rabbi Akaba, that we know a lot about, he declared that, that Bar Kokhba was the Messiah. <laughs> he put his imprimatur on him and said, he is the Messiah, rally to him. Well, it, well, he wasn't and that didn't work out. But again, they were looking for a Messiah to kick out the Romans, establish the kingdom and all that kind of stuff, you know, which didn't happen. Ultimately, the Antichrist will fit here, exactly, right? The Antichrist will be the one that the Jews will accept. They will accept this false Messiah and follow him. Verse 44, How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from only from God? The reason why Jesus' enemies were eager to accept messianic pretenders who came in their own name but unwilling to receive the one who would come in the Father's name is now made clear. Like most people then and now, like most people, they were dependent, heavily dependent on accepting praise from one another. Uh, they made no effort to obtain the praise that comes from God because they're not obeying God. They love praise. Um, you know, in 12, chapter 12, Jesus will say they love praise uh, Praise from men more than praise from God. Verse 45, But I do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you would, have, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So on the day of judgment, Jesus will not have to press the charges against these unbelieving Jews. Moses will be their accuser the very Moses they so highly esteemed. Their problem is that they have failed to believe in the very one about whom Moses wrote. It's possible that Jesus is thinking of a particular passage, chiefly Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. So it might be that particular verse it might be um, their whole misreading of the Torah, of the first, you know, the, the Mosaic Law, uh, which had not pointed them to Jesus. Um, so, you know, this, this, is, this is, Jesus says, your failure to believe me is, is understandable because you didn't really, you don't really, you didn't really believe Moses. <laughs> Uh, you really haven't followed his. If you were true believers in Moses and in the Old Testament, you would recognize me. The fact that they don't recognize him shows that they're not true believers. Now here the words of Jesus and the words of Moses are placed on, you know, an equal authority. You know, he says, uh, if you believe Moses, you'd believe me. And again, of course, that's going to raise all kinds of thoughts in their minds that we're well, who is this fellow who's making these unbelievable claims that he's on the same level with Moses? Well, that brings us to chapter 6 and the feeding of the 5,000, but we'll have to wait for that meal till next week. <laughs> 
fish and, and Barty Lowe's. Maybe, maybe you won't want that. All right. Thank you so much. It's good to see you tonight. And Lord willing, we hope to see you next week.